This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As those of you who have been following the podcast know, we are wrapping up our series on the presidency of John Adams. And as a final send-off to Mr. Adams, I ask for your questions about anything about his life or his career that we didn't get a chance to touch on or that we didn't get a chance to cover in depth in the podcast. I got some great questions, so let's launch right in. The first question actually comes from a fellow podcast. The History of the Netherlands wanted to know more about Adams' tenure as U.S. Minister to the Netherlands, which we discussed in episode 2.02. But again, this is one of those areas that we only were able to touch on briefly. So John's interactions with the Netherlands actually began during his tenure as minister to seek a treaty with Great Britain in 1780. So in 1780, there really wasn't much for John to do because the British were not at the point where they wanted to come to the negotiating table. So John, on his own initiative, traveled to Amsterdam to try to secure a loan for the U.S. from Dutch bankers. So he really didn't have any authority to do so at the time. So he wrote back and was able to get first a temporary authority, but then later he was named as the official U.S. commissioner to the United Provinces, which is what the Netherlands was known as at the time. So it took John a while for him to actually get a meeting with Dutch officials as the government, as the Dutch government was pursuing a policy of neutrality and was concerned about getting into a conflict with Britain at the time. The British government had issued an order in council which preemptively authorized reprisals against Dutch shipping if the Dutch swayed from their policy of neutrality. However, Adams was able to work with a French national who was also a secret agent for the U.S., Charles W.F. Dumas to cultivate various influential Dutchmen to try and get them to support the U.S. cause. However, John was frustrated by his lack of progress in 1781, and as the year went on, he ended up falling ill with what we think now was probably either malaria or typhoid fever. But things would change for U.S.-Dutch relations uh, when news arrived of the victory at Yorktown. The British... excuse me, the French actually um, helped to provide a little additional persuasion, but finally the Dutch government formally recognized the United States on April 19, 1782, which was the seventh anniversary of the battles of Lexington and Concord. Adams would then negotiate a treaty and a loan, as well as set up the official U.S. Embassy in The Hague. While he would officially remain as minister until 1788, John would actually get called away from the post, first for the negotiations with the British, which resulted in the Treaty of Paris, but then for various other diplomatic endeavors. And ultimately, in 1785, he was named as the first U.S. minister to Great Britain. And so then he would be based out of London for the remainder of his time as a diplomat in Europe. However, he did travel back to The Hague in 1783 to work on increasing some trade opportunities between the U.S. and the United Provinces, 
as well as to do some more work with loans for the U.S. However, I did want to include this quote uh, from John Furling's John Adams, A Life, which kind of helps to helps us to understand how Adams perceived the Netherlands and the Dutch people during his tenure. So Furling wrote as quote, he immediately took a fancy to the place. He found the inhabitants frugal and serious, much like the natives of New England. He also discovered that a small convivial band of Americans resided in the city of Amsterdam, mostly businessmen who had come to the city in search of commerce, a tiny community within which he could relax, converse, and entertain. With its coursing canals and old world architecture, Amsterdam was a beautiful city, although its frequently damp, gloomy weather caused him some discomfort. After a few months, he admitted that he found it preferable to Paris or even to Philadelphia. So he really did take a liking to the Dutch people, and he was able to accomplish much that um, served the interest of the United States during this time in his post. So it's considered one of the big successes in his diplomatic career and in his professional career. So our next question comes from Saeed. His question was, who understood the Middle East better? Now, I'm assuming that he meant um, between Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. So out of those three, one that we can eliminate from the running at the beginning is Washington. The information that Washington had about the situation in the Middle East was all second and third hand knowledge. Washington himself never traveled beyond what became the United States. Adams and Jefferson, however, had spent a good amount of time in Europe during their diplomatic careers. And so they've been involved during that time in directing negotiations with the semi-autonomous governments of North Africa, dubbed the Barbary States. After independence, uh, American merchants who had lost the protection of the British Navy in the Mediterranean that they had previously enjoyed began to be targeted by ships based out of and operating either with the tactic or direct approval of the North African governments. The raids picked up in earnest in 1784 and 1785, so Adams and Jefferson worked to intervene to do what they could from their respective diplomatic posts. However, without a strong navy to provide protection, there was little that could be done except to give in to the demands of the North African governments. Thus, in early 1787, they successfully concluded a treaty with Morocco to pay the bribes requested in order to ensure that American ships were protected. In the course of the Washington presidency, agreements would be reached with all of the other powers in the region, with tributes being paid to all. Out of all the three, so going back to Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, it seems that Adams had a better grasp of the situation, though Jefferson, Jefferson would be the one to deal with it most directly. So to Jefferson, the situation in the Mediterranean was a quote-unquote sideshow to other foreign relations, most notably those with Britain and France. To Adams, though, he recognized throughout his public career the importance of a strong navy in order to secure American commerce abroad, not just in the Atlantic, but also the Caribbean and the Mediterranean. But does this mean that he actually understood the culture? During the negotiations, uh, while he was, uh, he was a minister in Europe, in February 1786, Adams would meet directly with an ambassador from Tripoli, Abdurrahman. And Adams's letter to Jefferson of February 17th describing the encounter is worth reading for the cultural exchange. I'll actually post a link to it uh, for the source notes for this episode. The Tripoli ambassador offered Adams first tobacco from a pipe with a, quote, 
stem fit for a walking cane, then coffee, and the American followed the example of his host, quote, with such exactness and solemnity that some of the tripling aides who watched declared that Adams was a Turk. That, however, from what I've seen, is as far as Adams got in studying Middle Eastern culture. Jefferson, on the other hand, seemed to have studied more about Islam and Middle Eastern history and language, as Denise Spellberg discusses in her book, Thomas Jefferson's Quran, Islam and the Founders. Adams seems to have better understood from a Western point of view how to most effectively engage with the Middle Eastern and North African powers that the United States dealt with at the time, but Jefferson probably had the most knowledge of Middle Eastern culture, though that seems to have come from secondhand reports and printed books. So thank you so much for that question. That's actually something that really doesn't get discussed quite as much with um, Washington and Adams, though we're going to discuss it a bit more with Jefferson. But, you know, I don't think we understand necessarily how far uh, U.S. foreign relations with the Middle East goes, um, going back to the very beginning. So thank you for that question, and thank you for um, allowing me that opportunity to kind of expand on that a little bit, because it's really going to set us up for what's coming in the Jefferson presidency. So the next question is actually an anonymous question. The question was, I read a book that said Adams felt that his peers viewed him as pompous. Did they really view him as such? And if so, why? So as we've seen in the, in the series, yes, there were a number of people who saw him as pompous. They saw him as vain. They saw him as um, querulous. They saw him as um, emotional. Um, and indeed, at times, even Adams himself would criticize himself as, as being vainglorious, of possibly coming across as pompous, of being temperamental. Um, Adams was very, um, very self-reflective, and he understood his weaknesses as well as his strengths um, in a way that we don't really, we don't always see um, figures in history, and, and especially in the primary documents that survive, them recounting that they viewed themselves as such. So I think part of it was that, yes, he probably was a bit arrogant because he, he knew what he could do and he didn't have time to you know, beat around the bush always. But at the same time, we also see that some of that was um, used for political gain by his enemies. Um, they started promoting these ideas that, that he was this irresponsible, uh, pompous man who was unfit for the presidency in order to achieve their own goals. And ultimately, unfortunately, for a long period of time, how people, how historians and students of history viewed Adams was primarily through the lens of his political enemies, uh, whether that was Hamilton or Jefferson, um, the High Federalists, the uh, Democratic Republicans. They looked at these accounts and they said, oh, well, yeah, we agree. He was pompous. But then whenever you go in and start reading his letters and start reading other accounts of him, um, you see people like Elbridge Gerry. Um, you see other people that actually worked with him, John Marshall. And you get a different impression of Adams. You get that, you know, maybe this was kind of over 
you know, overextended. Um, it, it was really um, blown out of proportion by some of his enemies for this political gain. And um, David McCullough's book, uh, his biography of John Adams, has really done a great deal in starting to shift the public consciousness about Adams. But we still do see some of those people who, um, those students of history who still have this idea of Adams as being very pompous. Um, So short answer, yeah, he probably had some of those tendencies and, and will probably admit it himself. People definitely saw him as such, um, mainly his enemies. Um, But some of that's been um, a little blown out of proportion. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the next couple of questions are about Adams uh, coming to the presidency after Washington. The first question from an anonymous submitter was, how would the Adams legacy be different if his presidency hadn't immediately followed Washington? Honestly, if Adams hadn't been president after Washington, I have a hard time believing that he ever would have been president. As we saw at the end of the Washington series, though he was seen as Washington's successor and did enjoy some support from the president. Um, For those of you who haven't um, listened to the Washington series, this is about episode uh, 1.34, if you want to check it out. Um, Hamilton and his supporters did do some maneuvering to try to supplant Adams with Thomas Pinckney of South Carolina. So Pinckney was built more from the Washington mold than Adams, and um, he was seen as being a better fit for succeeding Washington as president. If this had worked, or if Jefferson had become president in 1796, Adams either would have been relegated to the vice presidency for four more years, or he would have retired to Quincy, both of which would have made him an even more obscure figure than he already was in 1796. On the off chance that he would have actually become president and not immediately followed Washington, though, I think that Adams may have come across better. One of the main problems that Adams faced in assuming the presidency was that he was not George Washington. George Washington had this um, persona about him. He was already an adored public figure before the presidency. He was already called His Excellency. John Adams just wasn't that. And anybody besides Washington was going to be viewed as, was going to be viewed in his shadow. And so John Adams, um, and, and as we saw, he struggled with that. He struggled with getting out of Washington's shadow and establishing himself as president, establishing his own, his own take on the presidency. Um, which actually leads us into our next question. So this one's from Les. Les asked, what if Adams had picked his own people for his cabinet instead of using Washington's? So this was one of the biggest struggles that Adams faced um, during his presidency. For those of you who have been following the podcast, you know that Adams decided to keep on the cabinet members that Washington had when he left office. Uh, He decided to keep them in those same posts upon assuming the presidency. 
but these cabinet members weren't necessarily loyal to Adams. And that would cause many problems. They would, um, and especially Timothy Pickering would be very insubordinate, um, would refuse to follow orders from Adams. And he eventually um, got them out um, either through telling them hit the road or they decided to go ahead and resign and retire. Um, He was able to put his own people in place and that became um, the administration worked a lot more towards his agenda versus the high federalist agenda or having competing agendas. The short answer to this is that I think Adams would potentially have been better off if he had been able to pick the right candidates and he had been able to get them confirmed quickly. The big X factor is who he would have picked. Since we don't have any primary sources, at least from those that I've encountered, to indicate that he ever considered the possibility in 1796 or 1797, he could have either picked a candidate that did a poor job or that was rather controversial to get confirmed. So with this controversy, and that's, that is one of the reasons why Adams decided to keep on Washington's cabinet, he felt that um, the Federalists would object to him Um, basically saying that Washington's choices weren't good enough. And these were also people who were, who, who were well-placed within the party apparatus. Um, They were well-known. They had their own connections. So he was worried about the, the firestorm that would start from that, from letting them go. And considering that we do know that Adams considered sending Jefferson or Madison to France as a peace envoy, I'm thinking that it was probably likely that if Adams picked his own people for the cabinet, he would probably have included a Democratic Republican in the midst, and Federalists would have been none too pleased about that. Personally, in terms of um, his concern about party members being upset about him um, ousting Washington's people, I think that he probably overestimated that. The only one that I think that could have caused him trouble besides Pickering, who would have just thrown a hissy fit, uh, was Oliver Walcott at Treasury. Pickering and McHenry weren't really as close to Hamilton as some have made out in hindsight, but Walcott was. Walcott was Hamilton's hand-picked successor in the Treasury Department, and he maintained a close relationship to Hamilton. So I think that if Adams would have said um, he wanted somebody else in place at Treasury and ousted Walcott, I think that Hamilton's direct opposition to Adams's presidency would have begun much sooner and could have caused some potential problems far along the line. Now, if he had picked people like um, John Marshall, who became you know one of the key members of his uh, of his cabinet, or Benjamin Stoddard, who became Secretary of the Navy, uh, the first Secretary of the Navy. That and was the first cabinet member that Adams was able to pick on his own. If he would have been able to pick people who were loyal but also effective, like those two, I think that he would have been okay and they may have served him and his agenda better. Um, what it would have meant for his presidency and whether that would have helped him to escape from Washington's shadow sooner rather than later, we can really only speculate. Um, but I don't think it would have hurt. But On the reverse, if he would have picked people that weren't as effective, it may have 
been even worse for him. His presidency may have been even less effective than it was. Um, it's all speculation. It's, it's hard to know at this point, but that's my two cents on the matter. So the next question comes from James, who asked, what was Adams's policy towards Native Americans? So I kept, during the series, trying to work the sense of the narrative, um, but there was never really a good place to work it in because, simply put, um, Adams's policy was basically a continuation of Washington's policy. But Adams just wasn't quite as focused on what was happening in the West as Washington. Um, in terms of his career, Adams had never really had um, any experience with Western land purchases like Washington. Um, it just wasn't his forte. So he just kind of left things as it was. And at the time, there really wasn't much happening that, that drew his attention there. Um, as we saw in the Washington series, the what's now described as the Northwest Indian War had concluded with the Treaty of Greenville. And so after that, there was relative quiet in, in the Western territories. More settlement was happening. Um, Native Americans were starting to move further West. Um, but there really weren't the conflicts that were experienced during the Washington presidency. Now this is going to change in the Jefferson presidency, as we'll see um, this is going to become a key part of the narrative. And especially with the Louisiana Purchase, um, with increased uh, westward expansion, and Jefferson presidency, the Jefferson administration, pursuing more land purchases, pursuing more treaties with Native Americans, very questionable treaties, you know, how much did the Native Americans really what leverage did they have to negotiate and how much pressure and undue pressure was put on Native Americans to agree to terms that were widely favorable to um, white settlers from the East. We'll discuss all of that in the Jefferson presidency, but in terms of Adams, like I said, uh, he basically continued on what Washington did and there just really wasn't that much to talk about um, there really wasn't that aggressive push for um, new settlement that there was in the, that we'll see in the Jefferson presidency. So thank you for that question. Thank you for giving me finally an opportunity to get around saying just that. So James also had a couple of questions about um, Adams's family life. First was, how was John Adams as a father? So as we discussed in um, the pre-presidency episodes, Adams was really away a great deal when the children were younger. Abigail was the one who stayed at home. She was the one who was making sure that they had all their needs met and was helping to guide them through those formative years. But Adams, um, whether it was through his legal practice, uh, being on the road, um, serving in the Continental Congress, or serving as a diplomat, he was away from home a great deal during his children's early lives. Um, he would, of course, write back and try to engage them that way. And then when the children got older, um, he actually took John Quincy and Charles with him to Europe. Um, and then Abigail and Abby would come later um, and they would uh, benefit from an education in Europe, learning from him, learning about uh, European cultures and 
John Quincy, learning about uh, diplomacy. So he would start to have a greater influence on them as they were older. Um, but the early years, he, he missed out on a lot. Um, and we see later on his relationships with some of his children became strained. Um, during his presidency, as we discussed, his son Charles ended up falling into bankruptcy. He became an alcoholic, which we'll discuss more in a minute. And um, he committed adultery. And this was really shameful for Adams. He refused to see Charles. He basically said, you know, I'm cutting him out of my life. I don't, don't have a son. You know, I'm just, I'm done with him. And that reflects the high standards that he had for his children and, and Abigail as well. They tried to give their kids as much um, benefit in terms of education, of experiences, and um, even trying to help them get started financially. They did all that they could to provide opportunities for their children, but they held them at high standards. They told them, you know, you, you have so much um, you have so much more privilege than other people your age. You've got a responsibility to use that. And when they fell short, like Charles did, um, it was it was very shameful for John, for Abigail, um, especially you know in, in the case of Charles for John. Um, and we see certain instances where. Like, for example, there's a letter from John to John Quincy while they were in Europe criticizing his pen work. He said, quote, can't you keep a steadier hand? I mean, even things like pen work, he had high expectations for his children. Um, after the presidency, after he went into retirement, he started to grow a bit more mellow and he really came to enjoy, as, as we discussed in the post-presidency, he really came to enjoy his family life and I think in some ways enjoyed a richer relationship with his children and grandchildren and the younger members of the family than he did while he was really pursuing his career. Um, Though we don't see much evidence of this, um, David McCullough did include in his biography of John Adams um, this quote in a letter, a later letter to John Quincy, in which um, Adams wrote, quote, children must not be wholly forgotten in the midst of public duties. And McCullough um, said that this may be an evidence that um, John may have felt some guilt about being away from his family for so long when they were growing up that he, he may have recognized that he did miss out a lot on his children's lives as they were growing up. He missed those moments that you just, you don't get back in this pursuit of, um, in pursuit of public office in pursuit of his career in pursuit of his, um, duties and obligations to the public. Um, he may have felt that maybe, maybe he did neglect his duties as a father. Um, but by and large, um, most biographers see him as being a dutiful father um, when he was present, when he was involved in their lives. And, and that even from afar, he tried as much as possible to maintain relationships with them um, he was deeply disturbed when Nabby passed away 
Um, he was deeply disturbed when Charles passed away, especially considering that their relationship was so strained at the time. He evidences this deep grief. He obviously did love and care for his children, even if he wasn't always the most present father. So James's other question had to do with something that I just discussed with Charles. Um, James said, I would like to see or rather here, you address the problem of alcoholism in the Adams family. For example, why did two of John's sons succumb to it, but JQA didn't? Also, if I remember correctly, two of JQA's sons also suffered from it, but not, of course, Charles Francis. James said that it seems interesting, strange, and of course sad that the problem was so prevalent in the family, but that it seemed to completely bypass certain members. Okay, so let's go into a little... Um, let me give you a little detail about um, some of the folks that were mentioned. Then uh, let's bring it back around to discussing the actual alcoholism. So Charles, we've covered pretty extensively in the podcast, so I'm not going to um, delve too much into him. But um, like I said, he did suffer from alcoholism. He got deeply in debt. He gambled. He committed adultery. He ended up falling sick and died um, at the end of Adams's presidency um, in 1800 um, from causes um, related to alcohol abuse. Thomas, the youngest son, um, really didn't have any problems until Adams's post-presidency. So um, in the post-presidency, his legal practice failed. And um, Thomas came back to help with the management of the farm at Peacefield. Um, during this time, he started drinking heavily and started getting involved in gambling. Um, and he really struggled during this period to support his large family. His, he and his wife had um, a large amount of children, and they came with him to Peacefield. And so it ended up that John was supporting Thomas and his family um, while Thomas was just going down this spiral. Um, I actually found while researching this um, in uh, Paul Nagel's book on John Quincy Adams, he noted that Thomas actually disappeared for five days after John Quincy confronted him about his, his struggles, about his alcoholism, about his gambling and all of that and money problems. Um, Thomas just up and disappeared. Thomas would end up dying in 1832 at the age of 59, and his family would then depend on John Quincy Adams and the inheritance from John Adams that John Quincy managed for them. Um, but you know, it, it just becomes like his, his family is completely dependent first on his father and then his brother. Um, for the remainder of his life and after. So moving on to John Quincy's sons, uh, we actually briefly touched on them uh, during the Adams post-presidency episode, um, George Washington Adams and John Adams II. Both of them developed an alcohol dependency problem. Um, George, despite being provided numerous supports and opportunities by his father, ultimately failed in his professional endeavors and he had his fiance call off their engagement. And after this, he took to, as Paul Nagel described, quote, hiding in his room and claiming to be ill. 
he was heavily drinking. He just seemed to have some some serious issues. Um, when John Quincy, his father, summoned him to Washington as John Quincy was transitioning out of the presidency so that George could help them move back to Quincy, George started leaving notes in which he hinted at suicidal thoughts. And then while he was on a steamboat for the voyage to D.C., he was described by other passengers as, quote, speaking wildly as if in a paranoid state. Then on April 30th, 1829, he vanished from the boat. And a month later, his body was found in Long Island Sound. So George had just turned 28 when it appears that he committed suicide. George's fiance, the one who broke off the engagement, would ultimately marry his brother, John. But John would follow his brother on the path of alcoholism and would start to suffer some serious health problems from that, just like his uncle Charles had done. John would end up dying at the age of 31 on October 23rd, 1834. You know, to James's point, here we have four members of the Adams family that suffered um, from alcohol abuse and ultimately died um, in some cases from direct um, health issues related to that alcohol abuse. So I'm not going to say that I'm an expert on alcoholism. Um, I've encountered it through my life. I've, um, I have associates in my day job um, that work with the substance abuse program at the college I work at. And um, so I've learned a great deal over the years, um, but I'm not a medical expert. So please don't take me as such. Um, but I did go to the Mayo Clinic's website to get some information. And again, I'll put a link to that on the source notes page for this episode. Um, alcoholism has numerous causes. Um, it can um, be from a family history of drinking, um, possible genetic predisposition, um, depression and other mental health problems, as well as social and cultural factors. Um, there are numerous things that go into um, alcoholism. And we see some of these in these examples from the Adams family. So it certainly seems that Thomas and George had mental health issues. And with mental health issues and depression, we see that in other members of the family, including John and John Quincy. Um, so that's possibly another genetic predisposition that goes into this overall issue and this overall um, question. Um, but just as with anything with genetics, just because a certain gene or trait is present in the family lineage doesn't necessarily mean that it's a dominant gene in all the members of that lineage. So it could be that these four were more genetically predisposed to alcoholism. Um, it could be that certain other factors worked in, um, that they just got involved in uh, society and cultural, um, the so society and culture of drinking at the time, which, you know, as we've, as um, some scholars have done work on, it was pretty extensive. It was pretty prevalent. Um, it could be that all of these things factored in. It could be that 
they suffered from depression, which contributed to this. So many different factors that just ultimately led them down this path and that they ultimately couldn't escape from. Um, and it's, it's very tragic with John when, when Charles passed away, he's devastated. Uh, he had, he had done as some other people do with alcoholics in their family and, um, distance himself from Charles. And you have to imagine that there was some regret, some questions, what more could I have done? And likewise, you see this with John Quincy when first his brother and then his two sons pass away from the same causes. You know, his brother Thomas, um, John was deceased by that point that Thomas passed away, but John Quincy had to deal with that as well as the death of his sons. And again, you see, you see John Quincy um, questioning in primary sources that we have now, what more could I have done? Um, how could I have helped them anymore? And he tried, but at the time, and even nowadays, um, alcoholism isn't understood as the, the mental illness that it is. It isn't as well understood. It's seen as by some people as more of a personal fault. And, um, people aren't necessarily connected with resources that they need in order to be able to escape that. And it's, you know, we still see some of these same tragedies today. Um, At the time there weren't the resources, there weren't supports for people with alcoholism. It was really handled more by families and some cases it may have worked, but as we see in these instances it didn't um just as a a public service announcement i'm going to provide a list of resources on the source notes page for this episode if you or anyone else is suffering from alcoholism if you need help there is help there whether it's for you or for a family member or you to be able to help you to support a family member there are supports there you are not alone you can find a way through this please feel free to share these resources and this information. I'm also including some suicide prevention resources. This is something that I've unfortunately had personal encounters with, with loved ones and family members. Again, there's help out there if you or someone you know is contemplating suicide. Again, you're not alone. Again, please feel free to share these resources. Let's help to get people the help that they need. Moving on to a less heavy topic, um, I actually had another anonymous submitter submit the question, uh, what was your favorite food? So I'm assuming uh, that they meant uh, what was Adams's favorite food um, in terms of me, it's smoked salmon. So, but for Adams, um, during his time at Harvard, though other accounts of the food um, at Harvard was quite negative, Adams actually said that he felt the food there was beneficial to the students, describing it later as, quote, refreshing and salubrious. According to David McCullough, the regular food was, quote, beef, mutton, Indian pudding, salt fish on Saturday, and an ever-abundant supply of hard cider. Um, The next instance that we have that I was able to find about um, Adams' food habits, um, on the way to and from the Continental Congress, apparently Adams really enjoyed stopping at taverns on the way. Again, from McCullough, 
The standard fare at these taverns was, quote, wild goose on a spit, punch, wine, bread and cheese, and apples. He apparently did enjoy the food in France, but was, quote, not so pleased with the food in England when he served as the first U.S. minister to Britain. As he grew older, he switched to more of a diet of, quote, milk and vegetables with very little animal food and still less spirituous liquors. Now, one item that we see um, as a lifelong staple of his diet was a daily, quote unquote, gill of hard cider before breakfast. So for those of you who don't know, a gill is apparently a quarter of a pint or half a cup. Finally, um, I had a question from um, North on Twitter. North asked, who was more helpful to the United States, John Adams or John Quincy Adams? Really, this is more of a subjective question, and it depends on kind of what you define as helpful. Um, For my part, I think that they both played a key role in the development of the United States and in the development of the U.S. as an independent nation. Um, In some ways, they depended on one another for being able to be a success. Um, In terms of John... You know, he ended up, he brought John Quincy to Europe. He helped to start to indoctrinate him for diplomatic service. And in turn, with John Quincy established as a diplomat in Europe, he played a key role in providing information to John so that he could be a success in terms of his foreign policy, uh, in particular, working on negotiating with France to end the quasi-war. Uh, John Quincy's insight in that became invaluable to him. But likewise, John Quincy couldn't have gotten his start in diplomacy if not for his father. And he would turn to his father for some advice and um, kind of bounce off information about what was going on as he developed in his career. Um, He wouldn't always necessarily take his father's advice, but he would at least, you know, get his insight on things. And, and that really did help. You know, they, they really had this um, professional relationship that I think ultimately worked to benefit both. I think that they were both very helpful, very beneficial to U.S. history and to the development of the United States. I don't really think that I can say that one was more help for the other. I think that they both played key roles um, in the development of the nation and likewise in their respective careers. That kind of avoids the question, but there you go. (laughs) Um, And that's it. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for making it through the Adams presidency with me. And I hope you'll stick around for the Jefferson presidency, because I think we've got some key moments in U.S. history that we're going to be discussing not too long from now. I really think this is going to be a great series, and I hope you'll find it very beneficial. Again, this is a labor of love, and I cannot thank you enough for all the support and for all those who have listened and um, continue to listen. I'm constantly amazed and I'm deeply appreciative. So without further ado, you can find the sources used for this episode, as well as the information for substance abuse treatment supports and suicide prevention supports on the website at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. 
If you'd like to reach out to me with any questions or comments you may have, you can send me an email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can find me on social media. I'm available on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, and on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. Thanks again, and until next time, take care, dear friends. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.